Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. In 1833, a small village in Kent, England, became the focus of attention when the patriarchal head of a wealthy farming family wound up dead, presumed murdered after an attack on the entire household that doctors could only guess to be the work of arsenic poisoning. The 1830s were on the eve of a new era in forensics, and the previously vague symptoms of poisoning were slowly being unravelled and understood on levels far deeper than ever before. But would these new methods of detection prove to be enough to not only detect the presence of poison, but to finger the culprit and see them locked away for their crimes? Or would the poisoner simply slip away into anonymity, as so many had done in the decades and centuries before? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 4, Episode 1. It's a whole new series. Thanks very much for listening and downloading. I'm glad you're all still with me. And I really hope you all had a wonderful holiday season. Not a lot's really changed here at Dark Histories. I kind of had some plans to change things up a little bit more than I did do in the end. But, you know, as it as it always is, like the best laid plans, right? It uh, didn't quite work out that way just due to time, really. I just want to give a quick shout out and say thank you to everyone who took part in the Christmas Campfire bonus episode. I really enjoyed putting it together. And I I think the thing I really liked about it this year was the diversity, like the sheer diversity of the stories I thought was really cool. You know, there there was no real kind of thread that tied them all together outside of the fact that they all kind of came from Dark History's listeners. And, and I suppose you could say they were all a bit out there and fringy but you know that I really like that they weren't all just kind of ghost stories or all this or all that you know that was it was really diverse and and I really liked that when I was putting it together and I think it just goes to show the diversity of of the people who listen to the show so that that was really cool for me and I was putting it together I really enjoyed it so thanks very much for for that I hope you enjoyed listening to it uh, I want to say thank you to all the patrons who signed up over Christmas um it was kind of bonkers I didn't expect anyone to because obviously I haven't been putting out episodes, you know, throughout December. Didn't expect anyone to sign up at all. So that was mad. Thank you very much for your support. I, that, that was really, really appreciated as always. Um, and likewise, thank you to the people that donated on coffee. Um, sadly, I, I, I can't get your names because it, don't, it doesn't tell me. But I guess you know who you were. So I, I just want to say thank you to you if, if you did donate via coffee. Um, that was really, really very nice of you. So to talk about this episode, it's a good one. It's it's a kind of a foundational one, I feel, that perhaps I should have done about three seasons ago. But never mind. Better late than never, right? do want to say thank you to Megan, um, who bought a book that I used extensively um, for the research for this episode, uh, which was The Inheritor's Powder. I'll talk a bit more about that later if you're interested in buying it after you 
hear the story. So let's get on with it. It's, it's, a, it's a beaut and it's going to be quite a long one. So let's go. This is the death of George Bodle and the birth of forensic toxicology. Any substance dangerous to living organisms that if applied internally or externally destroy the action of vital functions or prevent the continuance of life. This is the modern legal definition of the term poison. It might seem simple enough, but in fact it took centuries to carry such a pinpoint definition. In the 16th century it was argued with some success that everything in nature had the ability to act as a poison provided a large enough dose was administered or consumed. The history of poison and the human relationship with the various substances capable of poisoning has been a long and winding one, stretching back to the very earliest days of human existence. Ancient humans used poisons to aid in hunting, treating the tips of their various weapons with mixtures to expedite the death of their prey. Various poisons are mentioned in the Bible, in the ancient Greek texts, Egyptian hieroglyphs, the Hindi Ayurveda, and the ancient Chinese scripts. In 399 BC, Socrates, one of the earliest and most famous philosophers in Western thought, was put to death by the use of hemlock poison. Poisons have been involved with shaping human history and featuring legends universally throughout the world. Some of the oldest poisons include hemlock, aconite, opium, lead and antimony, but perhaps one of the most famous, and one which has littered criminal history for centuries, has been the substance arsenic depicted with a characteristic emerald glow. The liquid form has such strong associations that even those unfamiliar easily recognise the threat and meaning of a small medicinal vial, innocent in all other appearance except for a deep green vibrance. Rising to prominence in Europe during the Middle Ages, in the 1400s it was arsenic that the Italian bourgeois family allegedly used to destroy their political competition to rise to such powerful heights during the Italian Renaissance. Later in the 1600s, Giulia Tofana supplied a substance including arsenic to Italian women that eventually led to the destruction of over 600 unwanted husbands. Although this figure directly linked with Tofana is likely to be inflated, the figure in general is probably in line with the reality once associated deaths that followed a fashion are taken into account. Such are the legends of arsenic, and these legends fall in line with most people's thoughts when the term is heard. It's a relative unknown that arsenic exists throughout the natural world. It's encountered by all of us on a daily basis, and throughout history has had many, many more uses than just a simple method for the destruction of life, from medicinal to artisanal. Arsenic has been used as a pigment, and it lines the walls of the Taj Mahal to colour its stonework. In medicine, it was used to treat ulcers, abscesses, leukemia, and various skin conditions. And in foodstuff, it's been used for centuries to colour cakes, sweets, and various delicacies. And yet, it is its destructive properties that have preserved more than any other. One of the primary difficulties for the authorities throughout history has always been in the detection of the use of arsenic to bring about death. The effects of the poison cross over with so many common illnesses throughout history that a multitude of poison deaths likely fell under the radar due to the ignorance of the medical profession and the subtlety of the effects, which heavily resembled food poisoning and dysentery. 
a pair of alarmingly common problems in times before a modern understanding of hygiene evolved. On top of this, it is transparent, flavorless, easily dispersed into hot food and liquids, resembled flour and sugar, was absolutely fatal in tiny doses, and readily available. Commonly used as a pesticide, it rose to its famous heights in the 19th century due to the fact that it was so easily purchasable over any chemist's counter for only a few pence per ounce, with little to no restrictions until the Arsenic Act of 1851, which, even then, only introduced cursory measures of control, such as colouring the powder and documenting the details of sales made. In the 18th century, arsenic did become traceable with a series of tests involving complex and unreliable chemistry, or incredibly basic smell tests, whereby the substance thought to contain arsenic was thrown into an open flame. If the smoke released was thought to have a garlic-like odour, then one assumed that the now-destroyed sample contained a completely unknown amount of arsenic. It wasn't until the 19th century that real strides began to be made in the detection of arsenic for toxicological use. In 1811, the surgeon Benjamin Brody tested various poisons on animals and documented their effects, publishing his work in a paper entitled Experiments and Observations on the Different Modes in Which Death is Produced by Certain Vegetable Poisons. This was followed by Spanish chemist Matthew Orfila, who published his work, Traits to Poison, detailing several tests for uncovering the usage of arsenic as a poison in samples that led him to become known as the father of modern forensic toxicology. His studies, published in 1814, and his continued work in toxicology thereafter, helped Albert Swain Taylor in his own work on toxicology, which culminated in the publication of his own paper in 1836. Elements of Medical Jurisprudence. This is widely accepted as the quintessential work on forensic toxicology for the time. The publication detailed his own experiments and work on criminal cases as an expert. It was written in plain, easy-to-understand language that made it accessible to journalists, judges, and even the most stubborn doctors of the age, and listed exhaustive definitions for poisons across the board and their effects, as well as various ways to spot the effects of criminal poison defining signs of death in a victim, and how to recognise evidence of murder and foul play in a criminal case. On the 2nd of November, 1833, three years before the publication of Elements of Medical Jurisprudence, the Bodle Farm on the outskirts of London was waking for the day. Servants were arriving at the large farmhouse that stood on the main street of the village of Plumstead, preparing to get on with their work for the day. It was a cold Saturday, and before any work would begin for the labourers and farmhands, breakfast was to be the first order of the day. For several members of the household, however, it was to be the last. The Bodles were a wealthy farming family living in the village of Plumstead, Kent, just a few miles east of Woolwich and south of the River Thames, in what would now be south-east London. In 1833, it was far more rural, and although its population had doubled to around 2,200 since the turn of the 19th century, it was still a relatively small farming community. At the head of the family was 81-year-old George Bodle, a strong, sturdy old man who had spent his entire life working the farmland that he had eventually gone on to acquire. Although still in relative health for his age, most all of the daily farm work had been handed over to his son, John Bodle, affectionately known as Middle John. 
George had begun working as a tenant farmer at an early age, and throughout his life had gradually come to own vast swathes of farm and marshland, a small cottage on the same land, as well as two orchards and a host of farming and outbuildings, including stables, barns and cowsheds. In total, he held around 40 acres of the local land, and through this wealth, had dabbled in dealing thoroughbred horses, as well as holding £3,000 in stocks. In total, the old man was worth between £20,000 and £30,000 in 1833, the equivalent of around £2 million today. He was a well-known local figure with a strong reputation as both an employer and a member of the community, previously having held the position of churchwarden for over 20 years. George lived with his wife, Anne, in the main two-storey red brick farmhouse that backed onto the farm's apple and pear orchards. Anne Bodle was 74 years old and finding old age had touched more of a struggle than her husband. Throughout the summer of 1833, she had been more or less entirely bedbound due to failing health. The couple's home also consisted of two maids, Betsy, a young deaf and dumb girl and granddaughter of Anne's from her previous marriage, and 19-year-old Sophia Taylor, a maid of all work who tirelessly looked after the day-to-day running of near enough every facet of the household. Another of Anne's daughters, Elizabeth Evans, often stayed over at the farmhouse, looking after Anne since she had become increasingly bedbound over the previous months. George and Anne had several children. Mary Ann Bodle had married a man named Samuel Baxter, and the pair lived on their own farm less than five miles from the Bodle farm. Then there was the aforementioned Middle John, who lived in the farm's small cottage down the track from the main farmhouse, with his wife Catherine and two sons, 23-year-old young John and 26-year-old George. The pair also lived with Catherine's nephew, 15-year-old Henry Perks, who also worked at the farm as a general errand boy. Middle John and Catherine had one daughter, Mary, though she had married and moved to Clerkenwell in East London to open a coffee shop. Mary lived with her own family above the shop and rarely visited the farm. The family employed a local girl named Mary Higgins as their maid of all work, though hired might seem a touch optimistic. Many young girls in the position of maid of all work found themselves on the bottom rung of the servitude ladder and more often than not worked simply for a roof over their heads, the position being the only thing keeping them out of the local poorhouses. At 6am on the morning of Saturday the 2nd of November, Mary Higgins woke and got up to begin her morning routine of preparing the house for breakfast. When she went into the kitchen, she found young John already awake and sitting by the fireplace. This was not entirely unusual, but she was still getting used to seeing the young man so early. A few weeks prior, young John had begun rising early in order to visit the main farmhouse and help Betsy and Sophia with their early morning chores. Each morning, milk would be delivered from the farmhouse to the small cottage, and when John asked Sophia if the delivery could perhaps include some cream at the same time, she replied that it could if he was to come and collect it for himself. And so it was that young John began to rise so early, though whether it was really for the cream or an excuse to flirt with the young servant girls was a different matter entirely. In 1833, young John would have been considered a rather vain young man, concerned more with slicking back his hair with homemade pomade boiled up from animal marrow than doing actual farm work. Betsy and Sophia were both commented on by the locals as being very attractive young girls, so it's easy to imagine that this morning routine was much more about playful flirtations than dairy products. 
Young John was himself readjusting to life on the farm, as he had recently returned from London, where he had moved in an effort to set up a coffee shop like his sister. Though, unlike his sister, his efforts had tanked rather rapidly, and he had ended up moving back to the cottage. At 7am, as the sun was rising, young John traipsed up to the main farmhouse, just as Henry Parks and Sophia began their own work in the kitchens. When he arrived, he asked if either of the girls needed any help, and was asked by one to go and fill up the kettle at the pump for the family's morning coffee. This would normally have been Henry Parks' job, but that morning, having been late to work himself, he had neglected to fill it, and so Sophia passed the task over to young John to get it out of the way of her own chores. Upon his return, not finding the fire yet ready, he hung the now full kettle back on its hook and went to answer the door. A local beggar had come by asking for financial assistance. Young John informed her that, regrettably, the master of the house was not yet awake and sent the beggar on their way. When he returned to the kitchen, Henry Parks had returned and placed the now full kettle over the fire. Shortly after, young John took his leave, collecting the milk he had originally came for to take back to the cottage. By now, the house was in full swing, and George himself was away, preparing for breakfast, though his wife Anne was still in bed. She rarely, if ever, got up for breakfast in recent times, owing to her health issues. George unlocked one of the kitchen cupboards with a key he kept in his pocket and took out a jar of coffee to decant the day's rations into a teacup, as he did on a daily basis. In 1833, coffee was still an expensive drink, with high import taxes on the beans paired with the fact that the vast majority of British colonial interests were in countries that grew tea over coffee. A supply of coffee was far and away one of the most expensive items in the household expenditure, and it certainly wasn't every family that could afford to stock the drink so readily. In fact, this was precisely why, when the bodles were finished with it every morning, the kettle was placed outside the back door for a local charwoman named Judith Lear to collect and take to her daughter's family whereby it was refilled and the family reused the coffee dregs for their own children. When Judith Lear arrived on the morning of the 2nd November, she found, as usual, the kettle by the back door. This time, however, it was there along with the two maids, and they both looked incredibly unwell and were both vomiting heavily whilst complaining of burning throats. Judith sympathised with the girls briefly before collecting the kettle as usual and marched off back down the main street of Plumstead in the direction of her daughter's small cottage. Fortunately, Betsy was soon sent after her by George Bodle to warn her not to touch the coffee and asked her to bring the kettle back to the farmhouse. When she arrived with the maid, she found George sitting in the kitchen, himself as ill as the servant girls, looking pale and complaining of severe stomach cramps, vomiting and a burning throat. Breakfast had that morning consisted of a simple piece of toast and the usual coffee, and as such, George was certain that something was deeply wrong with the contents of the kettle. Judith suggested it was potentially bugs or toads, but George was not so sure. He ordered Henry Parks to clean it, which he quickly got to work to on a corner in the garden, scraping the contents out into the grass. The day continued on with little in the way of recovery for George Bodle and the servants. At noon, Elizabeth Evans returned to the cottage, also sick, and she immediately went up to bed. As evening rolled in, Middle John showed up at the house to collect his day's wages. It was, according to him, the first he had heard of the commotion that had been going on in the farmhouse all day. He found his father gravely ill, still vomiting, and complaining of stomach pains and weak eyesight. 
Shortly after, the doctor was eventually called in. Though it might seem strange to have waited all day to inform a doctor of the problems in the farmhouse, it can be easily explained by the prevalence of a disease common at the time nicknamed the English. The English referred to English cholera, a blanket term used for several stomach problems common in the 19th century, including ataxic fever, a form of malaria prevalent around marshlands, the bloody flux, better known today as dysentery, and vomiting black matter, a term that wrapped up several severe gastric diseases that might have wound up with the sufferer vomiting flecks of blood. Most of these issues had quick onsets and managed to pass just as quickly without the need of costly doctor visits, and as such, many people were keen to ride them out rather than inconvenience both doctor and wallet for a cure that was unlikely to make a great deal of difference. On this occasion, however, George saw fit to engage a doctor, and so, at around 6pm, Dr John Butler arrived at the farm and almost instantly came to a diagnosis that George himself had been suspecting. The doctor was fairly sure that the family had been poisoned, and most likely with white arsenic, which he suspected had been mixed into the coffee that they had all drank that morning. Dr Butler prescribed egg whites for the situation, one of a group of cures including castor oil, egg whites, sugar water, and realistically, any other fluid that could be drunk to induce vomiting and hopefully flush out any irritant from the stomach of the victim. George found little use in the egg whites and instead chose to drink ale whilst the servants stuck to the prescribed route. The doctor left that night and recommended that the family rest and await his return the next day. The following morning, Sunday the 3rd of November, however, saw little in the way of recovery for George, who, if anything, looked worse than the day before, though the doctor did remark that the servant girls were looking a little better and they seemed to be showing some improvement in their condition. That night, he consulted with the doctor Thomas Sutton from London with whom his family had held close family ties for many years. The next day, Monday the 4th of November, Dr Sutton went with Dr Butler to the farmhouse and confirmed that he too believed George to be suffering from arsenic poisoning, though it seemed that George had at least finally stopped vomiting and his eyesight too appeared to be slowly improving. He still complained of severe stomach pain, however, and the doctors both noted that he seemed to have a raised pulse. On his next visit, Tuesday the 5th of November, Dr Butler was not to issue any advice, but instead was called to the farmhouse to confirm the death of George, who had passed away that evening, with his son, Middle John, by his bedside. The following day, the executors of George Bodle's last will and testament opened the document and the contents were made public. They likely came as quite a shock to several members of the Bodle family. As it turned out, George had recently rewritten his will with the aid of his son-in-law, Samuel Baxter. In short, George Bodle left almost everything to his wife, Anne Bodle, including his liquors and household stores, along with the use of his house, orchards and all the profits of the farm for as long as she remained unmarried and his widow, or until her own death. On the result of Anne's death, or her remarrying, the property would then find itself being split up between Middlejohn and Samuel Baxter with Middlejohn gaining the farmhouse and the cottage in which he currently lived, 13 acres of farmland including the orchards, along with 3 acres of marshland. He was to be entitled to all profits made by the farm, but all of this came with one caveat. He was not able to sell any of the farmland or any of the property, but instead 
was to act only as overseer until his own death, which would then see his share of the land divided amongst his children, which they were able to do with as they pleased, including selling it off. Everything else, including all the stables, yards, gardens, and 11 acres of land, was to be given to Samuel Baxter, and unlike Middle John, Samuel was permitted to do with these as he pleased. Meanwhile, Samuel's wife, George's daughter, was to receive all the stocks and dividends. Undoubtedly, this would likely have come as a frustrating shock to Middle John, who had laboured the farm for his father for the better part of his life, only to find out that he was little more than a caretaker, and whilst the profit would have been a relatively healthy income, the inability to have any freedom with the land at all, whilst his brother-in-law was afforded all the freedom in the world with his share, was undoubtedly felt as something of a kick in the teeth. In the few days that had passed by while George had slowly died, the rumour mill in the small village had not been quiet on the matter. A well-known and respected man, seemingly poisoned, was not something to pass up as good gossip, and suspicions and rumours quickly began to fly. Hot at the top of the list was the whereabouts of young John, who had seemingly run away since the morning the family's illness had begun, and it had already been noted that he had himself filled the kettle with water before mysteriously going missing. This rumour was not made any less the potent when it began to circulate that George had told Middle John on his deathbed that he knew he had been poisoned and he knew it had been young John. Dr Butler, keen to play detective, as all doctors were impressed to do, before the formation of the relevant bodies in the newly created Metropolitan Police in the 1830s, had, throughout his trips, already started to collect evidence from the scene after his early suspicion of arsenic poisoning. He had already collected a sample of George's vomit, scrapings from the kettle in the garden from where Henry Parks had cleaned it out, as well as beginning to make general inquiries of the members of the household in regards to their knowledge of poisons and their suspicions as to who the culprit may have been. In 1830, the first course in forensic medicine made its way into the curriculum for genuinely qualified doctors, though it wasn't until 1833 that a three-month course in forensics became mandatory. Although Dr. Butler had qualified long before such courses were part of the training to become a doctor, he was far less bumbling than many of his time and had been keen to brush up on his knowledge and stay current. And so fortunately, much of the evidence collected by him over the past days was relatively well collated and collected by the doctor come detective. That night upon his leaving the farm, he visited the local magistrate and reported the death and his suspicions concerning poisoning. Due to the sheer amount of rumour that circulated the village, the magistrate enlisted the aid of a local constable to investigate the matter further. Dr Butler returned the next day and sent Judith Lear down to her daughter's cottage in the hope that she might still have some of the coffee dregs from Saturday morning. As luck would have it, she did, and she quickly returned with the scrapings, though she noted to the doctor that fresh water had been added to the grains and they had been reboiled. Still, it was better than nothing. The doctor then took the coffee jar from the cupboard and scraped out an amount of coffee from the side and handed over all the collected evidence to Michael Faraday, who was currently working as a professor of chemistry at the nearby military academy. Michael Faraday, however, was far too busy becoming a world-famous scientist in the field of electromagnetism to become involved with the case personally, and as such, he palmed the work off to his assistant, James Marsh, himself an accomplished chemist and scientist in the field of electromagnetism. 
Meanwhile, rumours in the village were inflating. They stated that young John had recently bought arsenic from a chemist in Woolwich and had run off to his sister's coffee shop in London. Perhaps more damning was the rumour that he had been overheard boasting about killing his grandfather and that he had spoken out about killing both his grandfather and father so that he could be a rich man in recent weeks. In light of these rumours, Clerkenwell PC James Morris was ordered to visit the coffee shop and take young John into custody, which he promptly did on Wednesday the 6th of November, catching up to him in the rear of the parlour of the coffee shop. Going up to him, Morris said, John, I want you. Bodle said, you can't want me, you mean George. No, said Morris, you are the person I want and I arrest you in the king's name. The young man was so alarmed that he instantly fell to the ground in a fainting fit. After young John had recovered from this fainting fit, PC Morris took him into custody and set about delivering him to the inquest which was due to begin on Wednesday the 6th of November. The next morning, he took a key from young John and opened a safety box at the coffee shop belonging to the young man, finding inside three packets of arsenic powder along with a solution in a small bottle. He pocketed the items and then proceeded to get drunk in one of the local pubs, apparently in order to shelter from the rain, though it seems he visited at least three different establishments and spent up to seven hours in one. During this time, he would later ensure investigators that he only had one drink and feigned drinking any more, presumably out of reasons of politeness. In truth, however, in a scene that resembled something from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he passed the evidence around the pub and watched on as the arsenic powder was opened up smeared on drunken faces and spilled down clothing. Somehow, he actually managed to drop and smash the bottle of fluid, though he did his best to collect the remains. In good spirits, he then picked up young John and set off to the inquest, (laughs) conveniently being held at a pub in Plumstead named the Plume of Feathers. The first morning of the inquest saw the 17 men of the jury visit the body of George Bodle at the farmhouse before returning to the Plume of Feathers to see questioning begin proper. James Marsh, the chemist in charge of testing the samples collected by Dr. Butler, told the coroner that he had found a quantity of arsenic within the kettle, though could not ascertain how much. Sophia Taylor, George and Anne's maid, was then called. However, she was still too ill to make the trip to the pub, and so instead the coroner and jurors visited her at the farmhouse, where she ran the group through her events of the morning, including how she had asked young John to fill the kettle and how she had made the coffee as she did every morning, and had found the coffee pot perfectly clean. Events then returned once again to the pub. Henry Parks was next up, and similar to Sophia, he told the inquest of the morning's events from his own perspective, though he did include that he had not known young John to have ever filled the kettle before, before leaving the stand. Then came the star of the show. Young John was brought into the room, according to the press looking firm and unembarrassed. Woolwich chemist Joseph Evans was called to positively identify that young John had visited his store on two occasions in the weeks prior to the murder in order to buy arsenic, which he did, along with stating that young John was well aware of the destructive powers of arsenic, as he intended the powder to be used to kill rats, which had been killing his fowl. Evans suggested that a considerable amount of the contents from one of the arsenic packets was missing, though how much had been used by young John and how much could be found on the floor of a pub in Clerkenwell was anyone's guess. Further, 
a third arsenic pack was missing altogether, though this was eventually explained by PC Morris, who, after visiting the chemist following young John's arrest, perhaps somewhat hungover, Morris had left one packet behind on the counter, which the chemist had later stumbled across and thrown out. The first day of the inquest ended in a rather difficult exchange concerning who was to pay for the inquest and investigation, which was decided to require the opinion of three medical gentlemen. Since the Bodles were a wealthy family with adequate means to pay, and since the evidence that would be gleaned from the investigation would relate to the death of George Bodle, the coroner assumed that the Bodle family would pay the costs. He was sorely misjudging the willingness of both Anne Bodle and Samuel Baxter, however, who both flatly refused to foot the bill, pushing the cost onto the parish instead. This only went on to later fuel more rumour within the village when some questioned what the family had to hide. Eventually, the proceedings were wrapped up at 6pm, with the inquest adjourned until further scientific evidence could be returned, both from a post-mortem to ascertain the cause of death, and the evidence from James Marsh, who was busy testing the various samples. Not wanting to commit young John to jail to await the continuance of the proceedings, the coroner agreed to allow John to stay with PC Morris on the request of his father, Middle John, who agreed to pay his keep during his stay. On Thursday the 7th of November, three doctors, including Dr Butler, the physician who had originally visited the Bodle farmhouse on the day of the poisoning, gathered around George Bodle's body and prepared to perform the post-mortem examination. Dr Butler worked as an assistant alongside Dr Francis Bossy, whilst Dr Samuel Solly, a senior lecturer in medical anatomy in London, took the lead. Upon completion of their examination, they were unable to find any singular cause of death, but did find several inflammations in the gullet, lungs, stomach and intestines, along with discoloration within the stomach that suggested some irritating matter had been ingested and ruled out any natural cause for death. Officially, the cause of death was listed as general disturbance of the constitution produced by the introduction of some irritating matter into the stomach. They also concluded that it would be likely that the same matter would not have been strong enough to kill a young, healthy person, a suggestion that was reflected in the fact that the servants of the farm were all slowly recovering from their ordeal. They also confirmed that the only poison strong enough to have produced a discoloration in the stomach and the level of irritation of the digestive system would have been tartar emetic or arsenic. After the examination was complete, the contents of George Bodle's stomach was packed up and shipped off to James Marsh, who was busy himself testing the various samples in an effort to prove the existence of arsenic. James Marsh had already completed the burn test on a sample of the coffee and concluded that it did give off a subtle garlic odour. Unsatisfied with the evidence, however, he continued on in an effort to refine his results. First up was the silver test. The silver test was developed in the late 18th century and involved pouring a solution of silver nitrate over the sample wishing to be tested. The chemist would then wait to see whether or not a yellow cloud would appear in the solution. That would eventually turn the entire opaque solution a transparent yellow. If this happened, it was assumed that arsenic was present. A similar test involved copper sulfate, which turned the solution green in a positive reaction. The problem with both of these tests is that neither quantified the amount of arsenic present, nor differentiated for any natural presence of arsenic in any sample that was tested. The only other tests available to Marsh were the reduction tests, 
a series of tests developed in the 1820s and early 1830s that gave similarly shaky results as the silver nitrate and copper sulfate tests. The reduction test involved heating a sample which, if any arsenic was contained, would release oxygen, leaving a metallic arsenic residue on the test tube glass. This would be heated once more, reducing the residue to arsenious oxide. Ultimately, James Marsh's tests were the best he could do for the time, but all had left him with no solid evidence either way though he did provide results that showed that no arsenic was found in the sample taken from George Bodle's stomach, vomit, nor the scrapings taken from the kettle that had been cleaned in the garden. He did, however, discover traces of arsenic in the sample of coffee taken from the coffee pot retrieved from Judith Lear's daughter's cottage by Dr. Butler. Muddling matters somewhat, Dr. Butler returned to the Bodle farm to see if he could glean any further evidence, whilst the inquest waited upon the evidence from Marsh. Whilst there, he discovered that although the cupboard that contained the coffee had indeed been kept locked and a key only held by George and Anne Bodle, the lock was, in fact, broken and entirely dysfunctional. The inquest resumed on Monday the 11th of November to great interest. During the adjournment, the press had pounced on the story and it had now become national news. Interest in the details of the inquest commanded a new level of attention. The piece that was published on the 8th of November publicly called out young John as the primary suspect and painted him in a particularly dim light. The person suspected as the perpetrator of the horrid crime is his own grandson, John Bodle, a young man whose character in the neighbourhood stands in very bad repute. It appears that on Sunday morning last, the supposed murderer went to the residence of his grandfather an early hour and long before the servants had arisen and preferred his services to light the deceased's fire, boil the kettle and clean the hearth. He was desired to go away out, but he would take no denial. He had never before made a similar desire. He placed the coffee pot upon the fire and quitted the house. The deceased and his family, consisting in the whole of six persons, partook of the coffee and shortly afterwards they became very ill and wretched violently. It is ascertained that the prisoner had made several purchases of arsenic from divers chemists in the vicinity and it is also conjectured that the identical poison which has proved fatal to the deceased was bought at the shop of Mr Evans of Power Street, Woolwich. His father, in speaking of the lamentable occurrence, has been heard to declare his opinion that it was the intention of the prisoner to make him the next victim. Aside from painting John as an outright murderer, the piece appeared to highlight Middle John as he casually threw his son under the bus. On top of all of this, the second day of the inquest saw Mary Higgins, Middle John's maid, called to witness, and she also wasted no time in supplying the rumour mill with their latest confirmations. Between dinner and tea on Saturday, I heard the prisoner say he would not mind poisoning anyone he did not like. The observation was addressed to my mistress. My mistress said she would not risk her own soul into danger for anyone. The prisoner replied, Oh, I would not mind. Just give me the stuff and you will see. My mistress said it was light talking. The conversation was then dropped and was not resumed. I heard the prisoner say one day in the week before the Saturday alluded to that he wished his grandfather was dead. Then he should have a thousand or a hundred a year. I don't know which. My mistress, to whom he made the remark, said, John, how can you talk so? The prisoner replied that he should like his grandfather to die one day and his father the next. I said, one should die one week and the other the other, and then you'll have time to settle the business, 
I did not intend to convey any particular meaning in that observation. The prisoner replied, Ah, that'll do. I think this took place Friday, November the 1st, but I cannot remember. This was all pretty incriminating stuff from the maid, and it was not especially appreciated by Mr. Colcahon, young John's lawyer. He hit back in his cross-examination of Mary, alluding to a sexual relationship between herself and middle John, and that previously she had been in love with young John, but he had knocked her back and came close to straight out calling her a liar. The remainder of the day saw Dr. Solly confirm the results of the post-mortem examination, along with the cause of death, and James Marsh stood to give his test results. The next day of the inquest took place the following day, Thursday the 12th of November, continuing from the previous day at 9.30am. The morning's proceedings commenced, with Sophia Taylor giving a statement. She was now almost entirely recovered from her own effects of poisoning. The day's most interesting witness, however, was undoubtedly Middlejohn, who now saw fit to make public his father's final words on his deathbed. What did he say? I asked him if he had any suspicion as to who it was. Did your father know he was in a dying state? I think he did. What answer did your father make to your question? He said he was satisfied it was not me who did the deed, but he was well convinced who did it. It was, he said, your son John, and I am well convinced he did it. With all the anecdotal evidence from both his father's maid and his own father himself, young John now found the cards heavily stacked against him. The only light for him throughout the whole day was when his mother was questioned and she strongly knocked back Mary Higgins' statement, calling it all pure invention. The third day of the inquest saw Middle John return to the stand for questioning. During this time, young John's lawyer made a strong attempt at lampooning his characters as a jury by mentioning his previous run-ins with the law and his charges of fraud. The day also saw Middle John pitted against Mary Higgins, whose statements continued to prove to be controversial, as Middle John called her a false wench for fabricating conversations between himself and the various servants. The fourth and final day of the inquest saw Middlejohn return to the stand and continue to give evidence. The problem the coroner was finding with Middlejohn, though, was that much of what he was saying was seemingly contradicting his own words day to day. It seems as though Middlejohn was struggling to recall what he had said to whom and when. Whether or not it was innocent was irrelevant. It certainly didn't look too good to the court, especially when the coroner pointed out rather sharply why there is another contradiction in your evidence. Do you know the situation in which you were placed? Young John took the final place at the stand and he read a long statement that attempted to clear up much of the facts that had been construed by rumour as suspicious. Principally, he declared that he had bought the arsenic to cure the itch, better known as scabies. He had used the poison to make a solution he rubbed on his skin, a remedy that he had been advised to use by a Dr Halifax. Finally, when asked if he would swear that when he filled the kettle, he did not put anything inside, he replied, I swear, I positively did not. His statements were all in vain, however, as when the inquest was summarised the next morning and the jury sent out to deliberate their verdict, they came back after just 30 minutes with a guilty verdict of willful murder against young John, who was promptly sent to Maidstone Jail to await his trial proper. Between the inquest and the trial, George Bodle's funeral was held at St Nicholas's Church in Plumstead. The 23rd of November also saw P.C. James Morris, 
The police officer who had arrested young John before going on a bender to shelter from the rain was suspended from duty due to drunkenness and incompetence. Young John's trial began during the winter assizes for 1833 on Friday the 13th of December. Having previously seen a dry run go awry, young John was not especially buoyant upon his appearance in the courtroom next to Maidstone Jail, though once again he had enlisted the aid of a lawyer to help him with his defence. The trial took just two days, and really only seeing highlights when Middle John was called as a witness, a situation the defence heavily pushed for and that the prosecution had worked to avoid. He explained that he had been quick to accuse his son on account of the words that his father had spoken to him on his deathbed and that many of Mary Higgins' statements against him were patently untrue. At least one of her statements alluded to Middlejohn knowing details of the poisoning at the farmhouse several hours before he himself claimed to know them. The final highlight of the trial lay in young John's defence. He stood and read out a prepared statement to the court. Gentlemen of the jury, Notwithstanding the time which this trial has already occupied, I feel myself under the necessity of intruding upon you some observations in answer to the case which has been attempted to be proved against me on the part of the prosecution. And when, notwithstanding that case, I can solemnly assure you, not only my conscience acquits me of guilt, but that I have the strongest conviction of being able to satisfy you of my innocence. A variety of circumstances have unhappily combined to place my conduct at the time of this event occurred in a doubtful light and, unexplained, to excite and justify your suspicion. Of these circumstances, you will find that some were the result of mere accident, but I shall be prepared to show you that others have been fabricated in pursuance of a deliberate design so to mix up falsehood with truth as to make me the victim of an unjust accusation and, by sacrificing the innocent, to screen the really guilty from judicial investigation. It was serious and dramatic stuff. His statement admitted to him having filled the kettle, but that it was not unusual for him to have done such a thing. He pointed out that in visiting his grandfather's house in the mornings to collect milk, many innocent freedoms and familiarities between himself and the servants, which led him to often helping the girls with their chores whilst he was there, and that these innocent flirtations were the motivation for him to visit the house at such an early hour. He made a solid point that no one is even sure if the poison was added to the kettle water, the coffee grains or the coffee pot itself, the second two of which he had no contact with whatsoever. He then addressed his running away after the poison had taken place. In fact, he pointed out that he had made a previous engagement with his sister in London and that he had always planned to leave the village on that morning all along. He then showed the court a letter that confirmed the invitation. This, he said, removed his absence from the village from suspicion and stated that when PC Morris came to arrest him at his sister's home, he made no effort to panic or run away, but instead went peacefully with the officer. Next, he addressed his possession of arsenic and once again explained that he had used it for some years as an ointment for the itch. He went further in this statement, however, and confessed that he had caught scabies from his father, who had brought the disease into the household some years prior, when he was having an affair with a woman from outside the village. He claimed that due to the nature of the disease, the jury would surely understand that he might explain to a chemist that he had instead intended to use the poison to kill rats rather than rub it onto his skin. He had also procured two witnesses who knew him in the years past, 
and who had known him to use arsenic in precisely this manner. This, he said, should prove to the jury that it was no falsehood invented with which to escape him from the current situation, but plain, simple truth. Young John then turned his attention to the anecdotal evidence provided by his father, Middle John, and servant Mary Higgins. Without blinking, he straight denied any of the statements made by them, called out their numerous contradictions, and then pushed to show his father in the worst possible light. Every person possessing common feeling will here be desirous of asking what can possibly be the motive that has induced a father thus to conduct himself towards his child. Even if he really knew me to be guilty, would not a father, under ordinary circumstances, abstain from being the first to offer an accusation calculated to bring his own son to a speedy and ignominious death? Gentlemen, my father has not, I grieve to say it, set a fit or worthy example to his family. It has been the lot of his children to see him imprisoned for malicious injury and guilty of profligacy of all kinds. But still, the voice of nature cannot be so absolutely dead within him as not to have left the ordinary regard which even the brute creation exhibit towards their offspring. What, then, is the great and overwhelming motive that has made him thrust himself forward uncalled for, unsolicited, to take away my life through the medium of this prosecution? To this question, gentlemen, I fear will be your painful duty to give a fearful, a dreadful answer. I would fain have avoided this topic, but a sense of the duty I owe to that supreme being before whom I may, however unjustly, be presently called to appear, as well as the desire of self-preservation, which is the first and most powerful law of nature, compel me to enter upon it. What then, I again ask, could thus operate upon the mind of a father? What could induce him to become not only the willing accuser of his child, but the fabricator of false evidence against him? Can any adequate reason be suggested, excepting the desire to avert from himself the horrible consequences of this horrible offence? Can you, as fathers, imagine any less powerful motive that could actuate a father to sacrifice a son? Gentlemen, taking this, however revolting, to be the only true motive, what extraordinary light does it at once cast upon every part of this apparently mysterious transaction? You will have observed, in every stage of this proceeding, an extraordinary anxiety on the part of my father to show his own innocence of this crime and my guilt. Before suspicion attached to anybody, you find him the first to ask who filled the kettle that morning, a fact which he already knew and which could only have been inquired of in order to direct the thoughts of others towards me. You find him proclaiming the fact of his not having been at my grandfather's house that morning, and you find him lying in bed much later than usual, as if on purpose to be ready to show where he then was. But, gentlemen, how is it not shown that he was out at my grandfather's the day before, when arsenic might easily have been put into the coffee jar, and the more easily because Sophia Taylor was out for the whole of that day. This idea never occurred to anyone for a long time because the coffee jar was supposed to be kept in a cupboard always locked and the key of which was in the possession of the deceased. But on an inspection by the coroner's jury, it was found that the lock did not catch and that the door could readily be opened by any person. My father had completely the run of that house. He knew every part of it. He had it clearly, therefore, in his power to open that cupboard and do anything he pleased with the jar in which the coffee was kept. 
after watching his father throw him under the bus during the inquest, it seemed that now was the perfect time for young John to return the favour. He summed up his long statement with an appeal to the jury to understand the gravity of their decision, to look at the known facts and to make sure that they were certain before they condemned a young man to death. When it came time that evening for the judge to begin his summary of the case, the jury stopped him in mid-flow to confirm to him that they had already had their verdict. Without hesitation, young John was found not guilty for the murder of his grandfather. After the excitement of the trial had calmed down, life in Plumstead slowly began returning to a level of normalcy. The authorities were left in somewhat of a bind, with everyone knowing outright that George Bodle had been poisoned, but there was no remaining evidence that could even begin to point a finger in the correct direction as to who the murderer had been. Young John's statement had been fairly convincing from the jury, but it did not constitute hard evidence. Following the trial, young John went to stay with the church warden Thomas Cleave for a time until, several months later, he left the village with both the financial backing and well wishes of many members of the Plumstead community, aiding him in setting up a shop in Bishopsgate, London. Mary Higgins, the servant girl who had been so outspoken in the witness stand during the trial, was given financial aid from the local parish, along with a train fare to her hometown in Broughton, where she went to go and live with her father. Middle John fared slightly less well. His wife Catherine left him shortly after the trial and took up a small cottage in Plumstead, living independently, whilst his mother, George's widow, Anne, died just three years later, aged 77. The property of the farm was left to Middle John, as per their request in George's will, and he oversaw the land until his own death of dropsy on the 17th of October, 1843, aged just 58. The farm and all of the land contained was promptly put up for sale to be divided amongst the surviving grandchildren of George Bodle shortly thereafter. As for James Marsh, the chemist, he found the case of George Bodle entirely unsatisfactory and set about inventing a test which could give a more definitive set of results when dealing with arsenic poisoning in the future. In 1836, he published a journal entitled Account on a Method of Separating Small Quantities of Arsenic from Substances with Which It May Be Mixed. This journal documented what was to become the definitive Marsh test, a test that could not only test for the presence of arsenic in substances and internal organs, but would later be able to measure exactly how much was present. Marsh had come up with an experiment that had the chemist introduce hydrochloric acid to a sample along with a quantity of zinc to create hydrogen. When arsenic came into contact with the hydrogen in the sample, it would create a collectible gas known as arsine, which could then be ignited and the arsenic collected in the form of crystals on a solid surface. Marsh designed the experiment and all the accompanying apparatus needed to conduct it in any lab throughout the world. Not only was it relatively easy and cheap to perform, but the materials used were simple to acquire. The test was not without its downsides. The gas produced was highly toxic, therefore care had to be taken when performing the experiment, and there was a small possibility that the test, as sensitive as it was, could detect quantities of arsenic from the reagents themselves. Regardless, it was the most foolproof method available and far outstripped the previous highly fallible colour test and it won Marsh a gold medal at the Society of Arts for his contribution to science and society. Just one year later, a Swedish chemist named Jonas Berzelius improved upon Marsh's foundations 
and found a way for the test to measure the precise quantity of arsenic in a sample by weight. Newspapers, perhaps rather hopefully, claimed it to be the death knell for arsenic poisoning the world over, and in 1840, it was put to the test during a French poisoning case that reached global attention. The death of Frenchman Charles Lafarge came just months after his marriage to his wife Marie in 1840. Marie was a very well-to-do aristocrat which she had conned into marrying him under the pretense that he was a wealthy chateau owner. The reality, as Marie quickly came to find out after the pair wed, was that Charles was, in fact, on the verge of bankruptcy and lived in a rat-infested house with his mother. Destined to live a life far below her station, Marie took it upon herself to seek a way out of the marriage that had quickly turned into a nightmare, and very soon after, Charles found himself falling repeatedly ill until his eventual death months later. Suspicion quickly fell upon Marie, and the aristocrat wound up on trial for murdering her husband shortly after. The entire affair made global headlines, mostly on account of a member of the noble class being forced to stand trial, but it stands in history as another, more poignant pivot point. The trial was the first documented case of the use of the Marsh test to determine the presence of arsenic in the body of the victim, and though it actually failed on the first two goes round, the third test proved positive once the chemist could show the court that the first two sets of results were negative due to poor practice during the experiment. It was a simple matter for the jury to find Marie guilty and condemned her to a life of hard labour. This case launched the Marsh test into the spotlight and saw it become the basis for a series of improvements which made it a de facto test for arsenic poisoning in legal trials right up until the 1970s. As for young John, he was seen once more standing trial in 1836 for larceny, although, just like in the case of his grandfather's poisoning, he was once again acquitted. After that, he disappears, at least for a time. On the 5th of February, 1844, 11 years after the trial of John Bodle, just as the farmland was being put up for the auction on account of the death of Middlejohn, a man named James Smith found himself on trial at the Old Bailey, accused on seven counts of extortion. He had pushed the buttons of the wrong target in a man named Thomas Robinson, who, instead of capitulating to his demands, had set up a sting operation and had Smith arrested. Smith's racket was a simple but evidently rather lucrative one. In short, he would get chatty with loose acquaintances and then show up at their house late one night uninvited. After spending some time chatting with them, he would leave the premises and everything would seem as normal. That was until the acquaintance would receive a letter from James the next day, claiming that whilst at their home, he had lost a sum of money. In the case of Smith, it was the not insubstantial amount of £15. This money, he wrote, would need to be returned, for if it was not, then Smith would enlighten the recipient's employer and the public at large to the crimes that were committed upon his person during his visit to their house the previous night. The illusion was clear, and given that being gay was still a crime severely punished by law, it wasn't until 1861 that the death penalty for those caught was officially abolished. The consequences for the victim could be, at the very best, absolute social ostracisation, and at worst, a one-way trip to the gallows. As previously mentioned, however, Thomas Robinson was none too impressed with this attempt to extort money from him, and so he contacted friends for advice 
and with the help of a close friend and PC Joseph Mount, the trio set about capturing Smith red-handed. Robinson's friend went to meet Smith with £5, which she offered as a down payment to buy Robinson a few days to gather the rest of the money to pay off the demands. Smith agreed to this, but as soon as he accepted the cash, PC Mount stormed into the house to arrest him for extortion with evidence in hand. Robinson needed only to triumphantly appear at the last to give a positive identification of Smith and to see him carted off to Newgate Prison to await his trial four days later. The trial was swift and on account of the seriousness of the crimes saw little bluster. James Smith was promptly found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 20 years transportation. Like so many, he was to be shipped off to a penal colony and placed out of sight, out of mind. Since the American War of Independence in 1775, the standard destination for a prisoner sentenced to transportation was Australia, and so it was that James Smith found himself awaiting shipment in Millbank Penitentiary. It was during the time he spent in Newgate, however, that has the most significance to the poisoning case of George Bodle. Whilst he awaited trial, two shocking revelations came to the fore. Firstly, the governor of the prison made the discovery that James Smith had in fact been a pseudonym. James Smith's real name was none other than John Bodle, and he was the very same John Bodle that had stood trial and been acquitted of killing his grandfather 11 years prior. Evidently, the shop that he had opened with help from the well-wishers of Plumstead had been quickly run into the ground. Young John had then went on to work at his sister's coffee shop in Shoreditch but after a short period and decided that a life of labour was not for him. He stole the family's life savings of £80 and made a run for it and was not to be heard from again, at least not until he found himself once again standing trial, this time for extortion under the name of James Smith. There was to be one other revelation, and this one was even bigger than the first. At the same time as having his true identity uncovered, Young John confessed to having killed his grandfather in 1833. Protected by law that he couldn't stand trial for a crime that he had previously been acquitted for, James Smith, aka John Bodle, freely confessed his crime, the truth of which, according to newspaper reports at the time, has been perfectly ascertained. John Bodle sailed for Australia in April and arrived after three months at sea, disembarking on the 30th of July. His exploits here are unknown, at least for a while, until in 1852 a newspaper report shows up offering the reward of £2 for the capture of escaped prisoner one James Smith. Given that the reward was never claimed, and this is the final newspaper report on the matter, one can only assume that young John managed to live out his days a free man, evading justice becoming something of a speciality for the poisoner who had managed to pull the wall over the eyes of a judge jury, village and through reports in the press, an entire nation. Well, I never did any of you see that one coming because I'll tell you what, I certainly did not. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that after these short adverts. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. 
Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So yeah, right? Who saw that one coming? (laughs) Because I certainly didn't. When I was reading the court transcripts, I was convinced that it was going to be middle drawn. I was convinced that somehow, somewhere along the line, Middle John was going to really put his foot in it. Because, I mean, to be honest, I bought his statement. I bought his final, Young John's final statement where he said, I mean, the, the, the actual final statement is, is much longer, but I think I contained, I sort of pretty much got the most pertinent parts in, in, in the episode. But I mean, the actual statement is, is literally like thousands of words long. So I didn't want to include the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, he really nails his down to the cross on that one. He really um, throws him fully under the bus. But I actually think he doesn't just do it sort of spitefully. He does it with real points. I mean, 
that statement was was not written by him. It was written by his lawyer, and he just read it out. So you know, it was it was well put together. And but I thought it just made really good points. Like it wasn't really even and, until he pointed out in that statement that it, it was never really been ascertained whether the arsenic was in the water, the coffee pot, or the coffee grains. That it kind of even hit home for me that damn he's right you know like why are we all kind of assuming it's young john because he filled the cup with water when in fact no one really knows how the arsenic was introduced to the coffee in the first place so you know or even if it was in the coffee for, for all we know it could have been like in mixed into the lard that was put on their toast uh, so, you know it, it wasn't really until young john pointed that out in his final statement that it kind of really hit home and I could see when I read that, like, damn, if I was the jury, I would, that would not make me too confident in giving him a, a guilty verdict either, you know. And there were many statements that he made like that. I think he, I thought he did lay it on a little bit heavy when he was talking about his dad, sort of letting down his family and throwing, you know, basically throwing him under the bus. And um, I, I did think that was perhaps a little over, overly dramatic, but I could see his point and, and, and when you read the court transcripts as well, you can see that, you know, Middle John really was contradicting himself over and over. And and it really could be construed in two ways. You could it could have been, oh yeah, so it was Middle John sort of being a bit forgetful about conversations that really weren't considered to be that important at the time. And he had more stuff going on, obviously. The fact that his dad had just died. Um but it could also easily be construed as hang on a minute. You don't know what you're saying. You know, you can't get your story straight. You're all over the place. So I I thought it was for sure going to be Middle John in the end. And I thought there was probably something a bit more going on between him and Mary Higgins because Mary Higgins is a really interesting one. She appears to like pretty much throw everyone onto the bus. She seems to not really mind who who she goes after. Uh, But it seemed like that she did fabricate quite a lot of stuff and I don't really know why or how she profited on that because at one point you can say, and and Young John kind of jumps on this in his statement and says, you know, basically she colluded with her father and the um, Young John's lawyer also points out during the inquest, he, he kind of alludes to the idea that Middle John and Mary Higgins were having some sort of affair. So you can see why she might sort of hit out them but I, she, there are times in the trial where she hits out at Middle John as well. And, and so you end up kind of thinking, you know, hang on a minute, what's your game? What are you getting out of this? I don't really understand it. And, and if you kind of read just her statements, no one really comes out of it particularly well. But yeah, I, I was almost guaranteed, you know, I was, I was for sure that I was going to come across something that was going to really kind of nail Middle John eventually. The only other one I could think was Samuel Baxter because he was the only other guy that had the motive um, because he sort of had some knowledge that the wheel was changed. Although he said he didn't know what the wheel was changed to, he was the only one that really benefited from the wheel and, and, and all the rest of it. So, so I thought somewhere along the line, perhaps Samuel Baxter could be to do it. And the fact that he wasn't really like blood family, sort of, I don't think that really matters a great deal, but, but, it, but you know, it, it, it's kind of there. And so I, I, I thought it was either going to be one of those two, but I didn't really have much kind of tied to Samuel Baxter other than the fact that he, he profited quite, quite well out of his, the, the old man's death. But 
yeah, I thought it was a great story. I thought it was a really fun one to start with and, and, and one that perhaps I should have done a few years ago because obviously it had all that kind of tie-in because it was on that, that eve of forensic toxicology. It was all really tied in with, I wanted to include a lot of information about the kind of history of sort of arsenic poisoning and, and the history of the detection of arsenic in poisoning and stuff. So perhaps I should have done this like, two series ago before I started doing episodes to do with arsenic poisoning but you know because it is fairly foundational knowledge really but um, yeah so there we go uh, something to refer back to when when we do other episodes on arsenic poisoning because I'm sure there will be episodes focusing on that because you pretty much can't avoid it in, if you're looking at grim history but yeah I thought it was a, a good episode to start with anyway I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did I, I really enjoyed um, reading this one uh it was um, a bit of a roller coaster. So I, I, I didn't see that end coming, especially the open-endedness of him escaping somewhere in Australia, which I suppose a small part of me was sort of punching the air at that point. I didn't really find that much to like in Young John or, or kind of ever find myself really rooting for him. But I think just the fact that he'd escaped and pulled the wall over so many people's eyes in so many different ways, at some point you've kind of got to just concede and go, fair play. Like, you, you won the day there. <laughs> Assuming he didn't just end up as a homeless bum in, in Australia somewhere. And he went on to actually make something of himself. So yeah, anyway, that was that episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, thanks very much for listening. If you would like to follow the show on social media, we're pretty much Dark Histories everywhere. Um, just search Dark Histories on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of that stuff. Or the easiest way, just go to darkhistories.com. On that website, you'll find all the links you can possibly wish for for social media, um, you know, our shop, and uh, also ways in which you can support the show. If you would like to support, that's great. If not, just keep listening for free. Thanks very much for listening. Say, I'm going to get off because I think I'm taking way too much of your time and I'm waffling on now. So it's great to be back. See you in a couple of weeks for season four, episode two. Take care. Sleep tight.